to take your Bibles and open them up to Matthew chapter 1. As Matt said, we are going to be continuing our study here of the advent of Jesus. As I said last week, a lot of controversy over Christmas, whether or not you should celebrate Christmas or not, but there is the reality that the advent of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the Old Testament anticipating His first coming, the New Testament anticipating His second coming is something we should focus on and it should govern our lives, not just during the month of December, but, but uh, all year long. And it's a good thing to study the Advent. Advent just means coming. Studying the coming of Jesus, His first coming, His second coming. And, uh, and we're looking in Matthew here during this Advent season, unpacking Matthew chapter 1, really seeking to understand this first coming of Jesus and the way Matthew presents it to us, which is a, a really powerful way. And we are looking this morning at these uh, genealogy of Jesus. And we'll be looking a little bit at uh, four names in this gene- genealogy that begins in uh, verse 2. Four names we're going to pull out this morning to look at the grace of God. But before we jump into it, would you just bow your head with me as I open our time in prayer? Let's just pray together. Father, I'm grateful for these songs that we've been able to sing. And I thank you for the grace of God. Lord, as we see this grace unfolding in a powerful way. And I pray, God, that our time together would just strengthen and encourage all of our hearts. Cause us to lift our eyes off our our moment alone, but to be able to take our moment and place it in the context of Your powerful grace. And, uh, And may this just stir our hearts and enliven us to love You more and to find confidence as we live in what can be oftentimes a troubled world. Thank you for the privilege of being under your word. May it conform us to the image of Jesus. Amen. You know, a few years ago, a couple of election cycles ago, one of the candidates was giving a speech. And in the course of his speech, he referenced Herbert Hoover. And he referenced the fact that he wanted to do some things that Herbert Hoover didn't get a chance to do because Herbert Hoover didn't get reelected. Now, you're probably wondering, what's the deal with that? Who cares? And what does that have to do with Christmas? Well, we'll tie it all together here in a minute. But Herbert Hoover, if you don't remember your history, was the president who was uh, in office when the Great Depression happened. And so he's a very popular president when he was elected, elected on a landslide, just very popular guy, popular during World War, II, World War I, uh, invented a vacuum cleaner, the Hoover vacuum cleaner, right? I mean, really popular guy, smart guy, brilliant guy, inventor. He was the man. And then the Depression happens. When a Depression happens, he's now blamed for it. And no one after Herbert Hoover ever connected themselves to Herbert Hoover. You don't want to connect yourself when you're running for office to a guy who was in office when the Great Depression happened. Okay, just a bad thing. This candidate did this. Now the reason why he did this is that historians are looking back now years and years and years later after the the Great Depression and saying, hey, Herbert Hoover had some ideas that had he been re-elected, it might have helped. 
It actually could have maybe ended the depression sooner. So historians have been kind of kicking that around and people are looking back now that it's not emotional and they're not, you know, it's not a partisan argument anymore. And this particular political candidate a few years ago said, hey, these ideas that Herbert Hoover have, I want to, you know, use them. You could imagine what the press did with that. Herbert Hoover, why would you, right, if you're going to run for president, you don't say, I want to, you know, carry on the traditions of Herbert Hoover. That's like saying, I want to carry on the traditions of Richard Nixon, right? I'm, I'm hoping to just pick up where he left off, you know, with digital recording. No, I'm teasing. No, sorry. <laughs> it's an old joke. <laughs> Those of you who are laughing are older, right? You know what that means. Okay. But why would you, why, why? You see, when people run for office, they will connect themselves, right? In fact, I, I looked this up. What are the most common names that, that candidates connect themselves with? There's a few of them. FDR, Kennedy, Reagan, Teddy Roosevelt, and Lincoln. Those are the ones that come up the most. The, the ones that never come up, the ones that never come up, except for a few years ago, Herbert Hoover, Richard Nixon, Warren Harding, and Millard Fillmore. Okay? I don't know why Millard Fillmore. I have no idea. But apparently, he was rated as one of our worst presidents. I don't know why. Okay? Sorry for those of you who are Millard Fillmore fans in the room here. <laughs> now, what does this have to do with this? this? This advent, these names. In the book of Matthew, there is a list of these names of the genealogy of Jesus. Now, a genealogy... Is, is just exactly that. It's the, it's the history, it's the record of people leading up to the person you're trying to identify. Now we have the coming of the Messiah. He's here. Matthew is going to record his genealogy. He's told us this is the son of David, right? The king of kings. We looked at that last week. And that he's the, the son of Abraham. He's the one who's going to usher blessing to the whole world. So he's powerful. So now we're going to give his genealogy, and in this genealogy are four names that surprise you. Four names that if you were writing your own genealogy, you would have left off. These are the, the names in your family history that you want to forget, or minimize, or smooth over. These are not necessarily names that you're going to put out there up front. And these four names are four women. And the reason why, now it isn't because they're women that, that make them so bad here. It's all the associations that come with these four women. The four women that are mentioned are four women that are associated with, in one sense, some dark times in the history of Israel. Some of them are associated with really horrible moments in the history of Israel. Now, what's interesting is that in a genealogy, you would have never, in that day, in the time when Matthew was writing this, you would have never included a woman to begin with. The women, it's just you go from the father to son, father to son, father to son. You just skip over the woman. The woman was an illegal entity, so she wasn't part of the genealogy. So there's no reason to put a woman in a genealogy to begin with, let alone the four women that are picked. Why would Matthew pick these women? And we're going to unpack their stories here today. But I believe that when Matthew put these in here, why the Spirit of God wanted Matthew to put these in here is to remind us of the power 
of God. To remind us of His grace. That the advent of Jesus is the coming of God's mercy and grace and power and redemption to this world. That His advent isn't just the coming of some event that occurred, some historical event, but it's the ushering in of the very hope we need to live in this world. And so we're going to unpack these four women. We're going to look at them. And we're going to understand that they're included here, I believe, for a theological point. I said last week that when you look at genealogies, you're looking at two things. You're looking at chronicles of hope, that God has kept the lion alive. He's powerful enough to do that. And they are also testimonies of grace. God is gracious. And the listing of these four women will confirm for us the grace of God. In fact, there's four things that we're going to see here. We're going to see the power of God. We'll see the salvation of God. We'll see the mercy of God. And we'll see the restoration of God in these four women. I believe that each one of their stories kind of un, you know, shines a light on some very important things we need to see about God and His coming. And how God uses all of these things to carry out His purposes and His will. And what I want you to understand today is something very simple. And yet very deep and very profound. I want you to understand the full depth of the grace of God. God's grace is actually a powerful, redemptive work. When we say God gives us something we don't deserve, we're going to see what that means. And you're going to get a chance to unpack and see the grace of God. All of these four points are all just really a description of God's grace. And this is what I want you to see today. Now, before we jump into this, I want to make a little caveat, kind of looking out here and seeing the ages of the room here. All four of these stories have really adult themes to them. They're pretty intense. In fact, uh, they're pretty depraved. So, as we get into the stories, as you see some of the names in there, I want you to know that I'm aware of the audience and I'm going to be speaking in somewhat general terms. Trust me, I'm not going to be trying to introduce thoughts and ideas that will create interesting conversations on the drive home for you. Okay? But, this depravity is important to see. So I'll be wordsmithing up here, and, uh, but, but yet at the same token, I don't want to undercut the reality of the grace of God. You have to see God's grace in its depravity. Not the grace in its depravity. God's grace in the context of human depravity. And I want you to see that. But I want you to know I am going to be aware. And I also know this. Some of these stories might even unleash, uh, unleash within you maybe some experiences in your own life. Maybe some things that are hurtful in your own past. And as that could happen, I want you to remember this is about God's grace. And you'll see God's overcoming power at these moments and that it should shepherd you as we touch on these things. So let's look at it. We're going to look at There's four stories we're going to be looking at. They go from the worst scenario to the, to the best scenario, so to speak. They're all got sin involved with them. But, but we start with the most intense one. And we start with Tamar. Okay, and we're going to see the power of God here. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, it goes through this... Uh, genealogy is Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, right? So you see all the men, right? Father, son, father, son. 
and his brothers, verse 3, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Whoa! All of a sudden, this woman is here. Tamar. I believe if you were reading this in Matthew's time, you would have went, what? You would have had the same response people had when this candidate connected himself to Herbert Hoover. What? Why? In fact, even stronger when you consider Tamar. Now let's, let me remind you of the story of Tamar, if you don't know the story of Tamar. It's found in Genesis chapter 38. Interesting story. In fact, Genesis 38 is the chapter of the Bible that most people go, why is that chapter in the Bible? In Genesis 37, you read of Joseph. Right? He's, you know, has the dream, and then his brothers get mad, and they throw him in the well, and then they get him out of the well, and sell him off to slavery, and then he winds up being sold to be a slave in Egypt. And that's how Genesis 37 ends. Then you get chapter 38, dealing with Tamar, and then chapter 39, we pick back up with Joseph again. So right smack in the middle of the story of Joseph is this random story of Tamar. And in reading Genesis, it makes no sense why it's there. And let me tell you the story as best I can here. Tamar was not <clears throat> uh, Judah's wife. Tamar was actually the woman that Judah picked to marry his oldest son, Ur. So we have Ur, needs to get married. Dad goes out, finds him a wife, finds him Tamar. They get married. Ur, all we know about Ur in the Bible is that he is really wicked. That's what the Bible says. He's really wicked. He is so wicked that God has to kill him. God has to wipe him out. So God kills him before he has any children. Now, if you understand the culture of this time, this creates a problem. The problem is that Tamar has no son, and Ur, the line of Ur, cannot continue on. Okay, in that day, you know, father's line was important that it would continue on. And so now the line of Ur can't continue. So here's what happens. When that happens, if you're in a situation like this, and Ur dies, he has no children, he has no son, Nothing like that. His younger brother, if he's not married, is now responsible to marry Tamar. So the younger son, or the younger brother of Ur, his name was Onan, he's called off the bench. You know, you got to marry Tamar. Okay? And here's the deal. When you have your first son, that son does not belong to you. That son will actually belong to Ur. So here's the conversation. Judah is talking to Onan and says, Onan, hey, your brother's dead. You're going to have to marry Tamar. And your first son will actually be called the child of Ur. He will not be your son. Onan says, that's a raw deal. So I refuse to have children with this woman. I refuse to. So he refuses to have children with Tamar. So, he dies. Right? Good Old Testament story, right? <laughs> Something bad happens, they die, right? And so he dies. So now, Tamar is obviously feeling pretty bad, right? <laughs> and so what happens? Judah says, well, I got one more son. He's young right now, but when he grows up, you can marry him. 
So she's hanging out, waiting for the youngest son to grow up. Youngest son grows up and says, are you kidding me? I'm not going to marry this woman. Not one bit. And so he goes off and marries another woman. So Tamar is stuck. No one wants to marry her. No one wants to have children with her. And she's connected to this family. She can't get away from them because she has no children. So it's, it's, it's a very dysfunctional moment, right? So what does she do? Well, uh, Judah's wife dies. He's alone. She decides to uh, dress up as a temple prostitute. That day in the pagan religions, uh, prostitution was uh, part of the worship. Judah's heart had been given to temple wor or pagan worship. She dresses up in all of the mystique and makeup and coverings that go on with the temple prostitutes so you don't see their faces. And uh, she has a child with Judah. That's how chapter 38 ends. And you're like, wow, that is really twisted. And there's no conclusion to it. Chapter 39, Joseph is in Egypt. And you're like, what is the point of this twisted story? It's just depravity with no ending. Why is it there? It doesn't make sense till you get to Matthew chapter 1. Then you get to Matthew chapter 1, and the Holy Spirit says, listen, I am now going to exegete Matthew, Matthew, or Genesis 38, and I'm going to now explain to you why this is there. Here is what happened. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Twins, actually. Two children. You know what was going on there? The power of God. This is like the most dysfunctional moment, right? I mean, this, you've got this, these three wicked sons. You've got, you know, Judah who's in the godly line. And his next generation absolutely is proving to be faithless to carry out the plan of God. And to carry out the, uh, hey, if that fell, does that mean I have to pay attention to it? Is that like, keep going forever? No, I'm teasing. It's my watch if you're wondering what that was. My timepiece. I'm thinking, all right, God's saying, hey, forget the time. Just keep talking. If this horribly dysfunctional moment, what's going on here? This dysfunctional moment. It doesn't look as if the godly line's going to make it past Judah, does it? Right? The line that should be carried on, the child that should be, the it should go from Judah to Ur and on and on and on. To his child, yet Ur is proving to be unfaithful. Onan is proving to be unfaithful. The third child is proving to be unfaithful. They're all proving to be unfaithful. They're all proving to absolutely be opposed to the plan of God. It looks as if all of God's people are saying, we don't want to go your way. And God is saying, it doesn't really matter. Because you see, I can use all things to carry out my plan. So if God can use that level of perversion to bring about the Messiah. God can use anything, which means there is no moment in our life where I can look at a situation and say, oh my, the whole thing's lost. 
God certainly isn't powerful enough to work through this crisis. Yet, he can work through that family line. It's pretty intense. You see, the power of God. When, when I see Tamar in there, I am reminded that family line could not stop their perversion. Their, God was not blessing in one sense, endorsing their perversion. God was not being thwarted by their perversion. God cannot be thwarted by the sin of any government, any king, any person, any depraved person in your life, any problem. God cannot be thwarted. His plan will be carried out. The grace of God is the recognition that His power is so strong that He can bring about the Messiah even when the people who are supposed to be bringing it out say, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. God is not bound to the depravity of humanity. God overcomes it. So, the power of God. That's the first story. Now, let's move on. Let's look at the second one. It's the second woman mentioned. The second woman here is Rahab. If you look at verse 5, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Okay, so now we have another woman mentioned. Most of you are familiar with Rahab. Do you know Rahab has this interesting title? I don't know if you've ever really thought about this, but throughout the Old Testament, she's not called Rahab. I'm glad in the genealogy she's just called Rahab. But throughout the Old Testament, she has this description connected to her, which if you really think about it, wouldn't this be a horrible description to have throughout history? Rahab the harlot. <laughs> I mean, like, there's her title for all of history. Thousands of years, people have called her Rahab the harlot. And thousands of years, people have wondered, she lied. Was it right? Right? So she's a lying harlot. There's her reputation. But she's in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, what is it about Rahab? Let's just remind you of the story. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua sends the spies into Jericho to go find out, get a lay of the land, figure things out as they get in there. Rahab the harlot is there. And she says, you know, you can hide out in my place. And so the spies end up hiding out because soldiers are coming to get them. And the soldiers come into her room and, and say, you know, hey, is, are these spies here? And she says, no, she lies. She protects them. And so the spies say, you know what? You protected us. And she said, well, I believe in God. I believe that Jehovah is God. And, uh, and, and, they, and they said, you know what, Rahab? You're going to put this scarlet rope outside your window, and when we come to attack, we're going to kill everybody but your family. You will be saved. Why? She believed. And she then is not only saved, she's a Canaanite, she's a Gentile. She is brought in to the kingdom of God, and then is allowed to actually be the great-great-great-grandmother of David. So his great-great-great-grandmother is a uh, Canaanite, one of the enemies of Israel. It's an it's a incredible story. Now why is it here? When I see Rahab, the first thought I think of is that here she is a Canaanite involved in immoral lifestyle, but yet she believed God. And and that faith in God was enough to save her and enough for God 
to use her to bring the Messiah to the world. Think about that level of redemption. She was living among people who were, who were condemned to death. Living a lifestyle that was a disgrace to God. And all she did is she said, I believe in Jehovah. I want to be part of his plan. And God said, not only are you saved, man, you are going to be really saved because I'm going to use you. That is an incredible story. And when I read Rahab in there, she doesn't, her name doesn't need to be in there, but she's in there to remind me of the salvation of God. Anyone can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Anyone. There is no one outside of redemption. Moments before the wrath of God was going to fall upon Jericho, this woman and her family was spared because she believed. Salvation of God. Think about people that we can write off, write off of salvation, write off of, uh, it's over, condemn, you know, it's easy for us to create the enemies. And yet God is powerful enough to save anyone. It often occurs to me when I think about all the problems that go on in the world and sometimes people who are Christians will rise up and cry out this kind of judgment statement and yet what did Abraham do when God was about ready to pour his wrath out on Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The bad place. He intercedes for him. God, if there's just a handful of righteous people, would you hold off your wrath? Please save them. You think about that. That's, that's the heart of that gospel. God, would you save them? Not God, judge them. God, pour your wrath down on them. Save them, God. I know your wrath is coming. Would you save some more before it comes? Save some more. Rahab reminds us, anyone can be saved. Okay, so Tamar, we, we see the power of God. Rahab, we see... Incredible, incredible salvation. What about Ruth? Let's look at our third name, Ruth. Right? We're back there in verse 5 again. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. But notice, Obed by Ruth. Now, in, in Ruth's situation, we don't necessarily have a moral defect in Ruth. Ruth is a a woman who really was an incredible servant of God. And an incredible servant to her family. But, but let's just kind of remind ourselves, though, where Ruth comes from. We know the story of Ruth. It's, you know, the whole book of the Bible, Ruth, about her story. But remember this. Ruth was a Moabite. You can't let that pass you by. Because we're talking about a genealogy and we're talking about family lines when we're reading this. And so Ruth's family line is important to the story. Not just her character here, but her family line. And she comes from the line of the Moabites. Now, who, where the Moabites come from? Moabites came out of Genesis 19. This is really depraved. Genesis 19. God has poured his wrath out on Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot has escaped. His wife, of course, loved the culture there. So she turned back around. She turned to a pillar of salt. And, and so now Lot is living in a cave with his two daughters. The two daughters are thinking, we'll have no children now. All the men have been killed. It's just us and dad. 
So they devised a plan to have children with their father. Just disgusting. And they did. And there were two children. One called Moab and the other called Ammon. If you read through Joshua, you will read through how the Ammonites just continued to plague the Jews and kept attacking them. And we have the Moabites. They are part of Lot and they are part of this insensuous relationship. It's just horrible, disgusting thing. And the Moabites were so disgusting and, 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 and where they came from was so off-putting to God that he actually said that when the temple is built, no Ammonite or Moabite will ever be allowed to worship in the temple for ten generations. That's how disgusting these, these Ammonites and, and Moabites are because of where they came from. And so, on the one hand, we read the story of Ruth, but don't, don't let the context pass you by. The Jews, there's a famine in the land, and so they make their way over to Moab, where the Moabites are. These are the people who absolutely do not, are not allowed to worship with the people of God. And a Jewish man marries a Moabite woman named Ruth, and then he dies. And Ruth says, I'm going to serve my mother-in-law. She's going to keep serving her. And they make their way back to the land. And eventually, all that happens with her and being restored. And, and the whole story, you could read it all in Ruth. And how she ends up getting married, and then she ends up absolutely getting involved in the line. You can see the whole scenario. But what is there? It's part of the story is that here's a woman from a nationality that is actually cursed by God. She's from a, from a people group that God has said, I'm not allowing you in the temple. For ten generations you're not allowed in the temple. I mean, you're just, that's how disgusting you are to me. And yet, even though God might set up that ceremonial setup and not allow them in his in, in ceremonial presence, it doesn't mean that he is not merciful. And it does not mean that he does not reach out and show mercy to people and to say, you know what, I'm going to give you mercy. And I'm going to restore you. And I'm going to bring into your life a man who's going to redeem you and provide food for you and your mother-in-law. And I'm just going to display mercy and kindness and mercy and kindness. And you will be used to bring about the Messiah. You, out of this condemned race, will be used to bring about the Messiah. It's an incredible thing to think about the mercy of God. He will not hold all of those sins against Ruth. He can forgive. He will not treat her with contempt. He will restore her and use her. So, God's power can overcome the worst of sin. God's salvation can deliver anyone. And God's mercy has no limits. It can make its way all the way to a Moabite woman. All the way there, God's mercy can make it. But there is one more name mentioned. One more woman mentioned, and that's Bathsheba. If you look at verse 6, And to Jesse was born David the king, and to David was born Solomon, 
by her who had been the wife of Uriah. So we don't have her name. We just have the description. I'm going to give you my opinion as to why the name is not there. Bathsheba is the only one of this list that doesn't come from either a depraved context, a depraved family line, or some depraved action. Right? The other three have this depravity associated with them. She is the pure victim of the list. She was raped. I mean, that's basically what happened. So she's the pure victim here. And I believe that there's a sense of an honoring to her by not putting her name in that list. Just to, to remind everybody, uh, this was David's sin committed against her. She was married to someone else. And not only was she violated, her husband was murdered. Right? That's what David did. He saw her, took her, she became pregnant. And then to cover his sin, he had her husband murdered. That's King David. And I believe Matthew's reminding us, the Spirit is reminding us, hey, this was his sin. Yet, if you think about this, God was restoring Bathsheba. She's not damaged goods because of what happened to her. Being violated in that way doesn't define her as damaged goods. It doesn't define her as being, you're, you're not worthless to the kingdom. You have worth. In fact, this horrible thing happened, but you know what? I'm still going to use it, and I'm still going to allow you to be in the family line, and I'm going to allow you forever to be part of the bringing about the Messiah. And not only that, when you're written about, you will be respected. You'll be restored. Your honor will be restored. And I believe the way that this is even written about her is the restoration of her honor. It's the restoration. She's not defined by the depravity of David. He doesn't get to define her. She's defined by the mercy and love and the power of God. And God, in one sense, even though David violated her, God is recognizing, now that's not who you are. You're my child and you're used in my purposes. And so there's restoration. I think that's a powerful picture here. That God is using someone who's been violated and saying, you're not worthless. You're not set aside. You're not out there. You're, you are still going to be used by my king. By my, for my purpose. It's, it's a very powerful picture here. And her name and the truth about what happened was preserved so that we can see the restoration of God. God restoring people who have had their honor taken away. God restoring people who have been violated. God bringing about his purposes and using people. And God delivering somebody from the sin of others. It's a powerful picture. David took away her honor and God restored it back. It's a very powerful picture. So, God's power, what do we learn? We have these four women. What do we learn? God's power can overcome the worst of sin. The strangest chapter in the whole Bible, the strange chapter of Genesis 38, makes sense now. 
God's power is going to overcome the worst sin. Rahab, a condemned woman living a condemned lifestyle who calls upon the name of the Lord and she's saved. God's salvation. Come to anyone. Ruth, a Moabite woman who doesn't even need to go to Israel in one sense. She's been released of her family responsibilities. But you know what? God just had mercy on her, put her with the right family, put her with Boaz, put her in a place where she was cared for. And even though the Moabites were condemned people, God showed mercy to a Moabite woman. God showed mercy to a Moabite woman. And restoration. A woman violated, a a man using his authority to hurt someone else, to take advantage of someone else and violate someone else. And then to rip her away from her husband and kill the husband. And yet God restored her and restored her honor and used her. Grace is about the power of God overcoming the worst of sins. Grace is about the salvation of God saving anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Grace is about the fact that mercy has no limits. And grace is about God restoring to people what others have taken away. That's grace. These four names get our attention. And when we talk about the grace of God, let's make sure we recognize grace is not just some term we use as some creedal statement. You know, I'm I'm saved by grace. It's just by grace. It's by grace. I don't want to just throw that word out in some kind of generic sort of way. When I say I'm saved by grace, I'm talking about God's power, God's deliverance, God's mercy, God's restoration. Pouring all of that out. Grace is God pouring out on us all of the blessing that we don't deserve. And God then using us to carry out His purposes no matter what happens. Because he has the power to work in whatever situation you're in. And so, as you think about your life, are you in a context, in a life situation where you feel like there is no hope and it's going nowhere? Are you in Genesis chapter 38? Why is this here? What is the point of this? Right? Are you there? Are you in Genesis 38? Remember, God's power. Grace is his power. To take all of that depravity around you and to carry out his purposes. Are you feeling like, man, I am in need of salvation. I am just in a bad place. And maybe I'm outside of God's love. Maybe I'm, I'm a condemned people. I've done too much and it's, I can't make it anymore. I'd say, no, grace is about God saving anyone who calls upon his name for salvation. Are you feeling as if, I just need mercy. I need someone to be kind to me. I need, some, I need some kindness in my life right now because I'm feeling lost. Grace can extend kindness and mercy to the Moabites and the Ammonites. Grace can do that. Are you feeling as if people have hurt you, violated you, stripped you away from your identity? I would tell you this. God's grace restores that. We don't need to find it on a human plane anymore. 
we can find it all in God. That's what Advent is about, celebrating the grace of God in His power, in His salvation, in His mercy, and in His restoration. Would you bow your head with me? Father, these four women just speak to us. They speak to our life. They speak to the confusion and, and, and messiness of our life. Sometimes we feel like we're walking around in, in Genesis 38 trying to figure out what in the world does this moment have to do with anything? Some of us are feeling lost and far away from you. We need salvation. We feel as if you hate us and that we've done too many bad things and our bad deeds have outweighed our good deeds and we feel the, the condemnation. And yet, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Some of us are just in need of mercy. We're just struggling. And we need some kindness and, and love and And that's there in your grace. And some of us have had people violate us in the past and taken away things from you. And you look at those moments and you feel as if this person has stripped me from, from what I could have had. But what we have in you is so much more powerful than what anybody on earth could ever give or take away from us. And that you can restore to us honor and purpose. We don't have to be defined by what people have done to us. We can be defined by Your grace. Thank You for the advent of Christ that has brought this kind of grace to the world. Thank You, Father. In Christ's name, Amen.